Amen. You may be seated and good morning. If I've not met you before, my name is Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. You know, one of the things that I think happens as you uh, grow in maturity, how's that for expressing that? You sometimes get into rhythms. And one of the rhythms that we've gotten into over the years, because we love to do expository Bible preaching, is that we'll either bring a book study to an end kind of at the end of spring and do something else in the summer or we'll break and that's kind of where we're at in the book of revelation we just finished up the first three chapters we're gonna now take a little bit of a break for the summer because we know people are traveling and we'll get back to it in september but also uh i love doing some old testament stuff because i'm afraid that our american church culture is losing the old testament narratives and how it reveals the image and and purposes of god and his working and so we're going to start this little series for this summer called the pursuit of us it's a study in the book of jonah and so if it's a minor prophet, so it's kind of in the back of the Old Testament. So Amos, Obadiah, uh, you get you there. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. But if you would turn there, that would be great. Uh, we're going to today... Uh, Today, we're not going to get so much into the narrative, but to me, there's an issue that is raised in the midst of these first couple verses, which is, how do we know and discern the will of God for our life? So this is what he says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So let's, if you've been with us, whenever we start book study, we'll always try to do a little introduction. So let me give you just a brief introduction to the book of Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He is a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. So again, just history if you're not aware. How many tribes in Israel are there? Twelve, okay? So there's twelve tribes of, of Israel. And David, of course, was the great king. His, Solomon, his son Solomon followed him. That was probably the peak of, of their power, their influence. But if you remember, Solomon didn't walk after the Lord. Solomon, in his later years, his heart was turned from following the Lord. And God said, okay, because of that, and I made this promise that, you know, David's seed will always sit on the throne, and I'll continue to keep that promise. But I'm going to divide the kingdom. And it happened under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Ten of the tribes became a new nation called Israel. They are the northern tribes. Judah, which is where David is from, also included Jerusalem. Uh, Judah and Benjamin remained in the southern tribes. They're called Judah. So the ten northern tribes had kind of the prophets that primarily spoke and worked with them. The southern tribes had those. And so when you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you read through the, the minor prophets, what you've got to figure out is, okay, are they talking about the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and are they prophets of this or to that? Well, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. We read about him in Second Kings chapter 14, and this is in the time of Jeroboam the second about the 13th 14th kingdom or king that had been over the northern tribes it says he Jeroboam the second restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of 
of Arba, which is the Dead Sea, according to the word of the Lord, which the God of Israel spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Now, that place where he is from is someplace between Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. But what we see is he is a prophet to the 10 northern tribes. What's unique about Jonah is that God now is going to send him not, not to Israel, but to the Ninevites. What do we know about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Assyrian Empire, which, by the way, uh, is going to eventually going to conquer Israel. So when God takes them into captivity, so the southern tribes was by Babylon, the northern tribes, it was by Assyria. And so when Jonah was prophesying is someplace about 785, 86 BC uh, through about 740 BC is kind of the time framework. What's interesting historically, this is a time when the Assyrians were actually kind of in a lull of their power. They had been great. They kind of went through a reset time and then they're going to become great and very powerful again. And that's when they're going to take Israel, the 10 northern tribes into captivity. Here's the thing you need to know about Nineveh. It also may give you some insight as to why Jonah was not all that excited about going. They were, they were, how do I put this? They were evil. I mean, they were just mean. I mean, you think about historically for us, if we think of, you know, what's a, what's a regime out there, most of us would think of the Nazis, Right? Uh, the Holocaust and they just what they did and the and the uh, medical trials that they tried on people and it's just it was just evil what they did well that was the Ninevites they they loved to skin people alive now I don't mind dying that's not my first choice of the way to go they would impale people on sharp poles out in the in the open sun and just basically let them bleed out and die to death uh, they were known also for burying people in the sand up to their neck and just leaving them to die one of the things they loved to do to their enemies is they would pull out their tongue and cut it off Jonah wasn't really excited about going, right? And maybe you kind of get the idea of why. Uh, there's a lot of interesting themes in the book of Jonah. Of course, we're, we're going to take it from God's pursuit of us because it's both God's pursuit of people who are far from him, the Ninevites, who are quite evil, and yet God is calling them to repent. But it's also his pursuit of his own prophet who walks in disobedience and rebellion. Uh, you have the themes of mercy. You have the themes of justice. You have the themes of repentance. Uh, you actually have a very interesting theme in here of God's sovereignty because God is calling the people to himself to keep them from judgment who ultimately he will use to judge his own people, Israel. So there's a lot, lot going on here in these little four chapters. 
couple of uh, key words that you find. The first one is actually here in uh, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. That Hebrew word is translated great. It's actually used 14 times in this little book. You're going to read about a great storm. You're going to read about a great disappointment. It's just a word that's used over and over again. The other word is evil. And again, you see it in verse 2. For their wickedness, that's the word. Their wickedness, their evil. That's a, that's a main piece of what's going on here. But the part that I want to talk about today, because is, as someone who tends, and I've told you this before, can be a little OCD, I, I read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Wouldn't it be really simple if it was just that, that God came and spoke to us and we knew exactly what God wanted us to do. Wouldn't that be awesome? And you see this expression, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You see it in many of the minor prophets. You, you, you see it uh, with uh, the different ones as they write. It's just God comes to them. You, you think about how Abraham, God seems to speak to him just in an audible voice. You think of Moses through the burning bush. Uh, you think of others. God sent an angel and told him exactly what he wanted him to do. Uh, you see others where, uh, I mean, Belshazzar, he wrote it on the wall. Others, he sent prophets, thus saith the Lord, this is what you're to do. And here's the thing, folk. When you and I hear what God tells us to do, the good thing is to follow. Right? It doesn't work out well when God communicates and you choose to do something different. Think Adam and Eve. Don't eat of the tree. We're still dealing with that mess. You think of, uh, you think of King Saul. I want you to annihilate the Am Amalekites because of their sin. He doesn't do it. He loses the kingdom. You think of Moses. The second time that they're going back to the rock and he says, don't strike the rock like last time, just speak to it. He disobeys. He now can't go into the kingdom. So when God communicates his plan, it, it's incumbent upon us that we should follow it. We should do that. But the problem is, how do we know? Because if the best way to live is to live in the plan of God, to, to live in the will of God, then for us to know it and to follow it is incredibly important. But the question is, how do we know it? Now, there's some people, and God bless you if you're one of them, who, you know, you get to hear the audible voice of God, right? I've, I've talked to people. They felt like they heard it. That's not me. So the question comes, how, if, if this is so important and God's got a plan, how do I know and follow the will of God? Because I want to be, you know, I want to be in the center of his will, right? How do we know what that is? How do we know to follow? And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. So the first thing is this. God does have a plan for you. If you know Jesus, I, thus saith the Lord, right? The word of the Lord is coming to you today. God has a plan for you. I can say that with 100% confidence. God has a plan for you. 
and I know exactly what it is. I know what exactly it is for you, and I know exactly what it is for me. God's plan for you, God's plan for me, is that as his children, we become more like Jesus. That's his plan. That's his design. If you're looking for his meaning, his purpose, what he's called you today, is that you and I would become more like Jesus. You think of that beautiful passage in Romans 8 with all the theological implications of predestination and election and free will and all the things we like to debate that are found there in Romans 8. And I think so often we get into the nuance, we miss the big piece. The big piece is found in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Folk, don't miss this. God has a plan for you. God has a design for you. And at the heart of it is that you and I would become more like Jesus. More like Jesus. That we would become like him. And so often what happens for us, though, is we get focused on what does God want us to do? Where does God want us to go? Does God want me to go to Nineveh? Or does God want me to go to Nicaragua, right? We, we want to know the tactical piece. And yet what God's most concerned about is not what you do for him, not where you go for him, but it's what you become for him. Now that doesn't mean that at times there's not specific things he tells us to do, right? For instance, he tells us to go make disciples, correct? It's something he wants us to do. What I love is the very first time he mentioned that to his disciples. It's early on, in fact, Mark chapter 1. He's there at the Sea of Galilee with Peter and Andrew, and we think James and John are there. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's not about what they were to do as much as what they were to become, to become like Jesus to become, to have his passion and his heart for people. The problem is, is we get so caught up in, but, but I want to know, I want to know, you know, where should I go? What does God want me to do? How should I serve? Should I take this job or that job? And this and that and the other. And more than anything else, I want you to understand today that in that tension, I think what God is often trying to do is just simply push us to himself. Because his heart's desire is not so much about where we go and what we do, that we're becoming more like him. And it's that, that desire, that need to, to say, Lord, I want to be right where you want me to be. I want, you, I want to do what you want me to do. I can remember in my own life, so... Tammy and I had been married about three years. I had been, uh, I was an associate on staff. I'd, I'd been a youth pastor for seven years. I'd, I'd been in this other role for about three. And to be honest with you, I was, was kind of getting itchy to preach. You may not know this, but I love preaching, okay? There's a newsflash. And uh, I was on staff working for my dad. Now, what you have to understand is my dad 
my dad was the energizer bunny, right? He, the guy never got sick. So it was like, okay, Steve, always be prepared. Something happens to me, you're going to preach. Nothing ever happened to him. 55 years of ministry, I think he missed two services because he was sick, right? So I just didn't get to preach that much. And so I was kind of, I was getting that itch. And at that time, there was a church down in Tucson that was looking for a pastor. And they were connected with us. And so we began that discussion talking to them about whether we would be interested in going and they would be interested in having us to, to be their next pastor. Well, in that same moment of time, there was a Christian school here in town. It's Arizona Christian University today. Then it was Southwestern Bible College that uh, their, their president had to leave for some health concerns. And they were right in the middle of the kind of the uh, academic process of getting accreditation. And they came to my dad and said, hey, could you serve as the president for a couple years until we get this accreditation thing done, even though he was still pastoring? So the the leadership of the church came and said, Steve, what if you came and you became the executive pastor so you could kind of use and develop some of your leadership gifts? Just you didn't get to preach anymore, right? He was still going to be there on the weekends. But you kind of run the church and your dad could go do this during the week and, and that would be great. And so we're praying, God, what do you want us to do, right? We want to be in the center of your will. We want to be where you want us to be. And I'm sitting here telling you 20 years later, I don't know that God really cared which one, but I think what God was really concerned about is that it would cause us to seek him. Proverbs puts it like this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He's going to direct your path. It's not so much of where the path is going that he wants you to be concerned about as much as it is that you're leaning in him. And so we prayed. We sought the Lord and we went to Tucson. In fact, we went to Tucson for three days. Spent a whole month there in three days. We didn't like Tucson. All of a sudden, staying and becoming the executive pastor looked a lot better. And that's what we did. And then a couple years after that, um, Desert Springs came knocking. And they needed help, right? You've heard this story. It was about ready to close their doors and ask our church for help. So I went down and was, would preach for them on a number of the weekends. And what most people don't know is at the same time, there was a church in Scottsdale... A uh, much bigger church. So at that time, Desert Springs was probably about 60, 70 people maybe on a good Sunday. Uh, it was a church of 400 over in Scottsdale that was without a pastor. And they'd asked me to, could I fill the pulpit periodically? So I was over there preaching. And it was, I tell you, it was interesting because I'd come and preach at Desert Springs and it was just tough. There wasn't a real good connection at that point. Uh, I go over Scottsdale and preach, and it was kind of like preaching to you guys, man. They, it was just good. And, and, and as we're praying about it, I'm thinking, okay, a church of 400, a church of 60, hmm. A church in Scottsdale, a church in Glendale, hmm. A church that has a fully built out campus paid for. A church that's got this little building and a half million dollars debt. And the whole time, what's it causing us to do? It's causing us to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. 
And to be honest with you, as I sit here today, and I'll tell you a little bit more of the story later, but obviously God did some things and we ended up being at Desert Springs. And, and again, I, I think for, for the Lord in my heart, it was not so much that as much as it was, you got to seek him, right? With an open heart, God, wherever you want me to go. But the question becomes, how do we discern God's will? Now, if he just shows up, and he says it, the word of the Lord came, right? You, you do it, but that's not how it happens most of the time. So what God desires in our life is that we would seek him every day. He cares about our life. He cares about the, you know, what, what goes on. He, he cares that we're seeking him in everything, in all of our decisions, all of our processes. But here's the thing. God's will often, I think, is not so much a specific directive, but it's finding his will within a set of parameters, and there's some freedom there. Uh, maybe I could illustrate. Let, let, me, let me use the screen here. It's kind of the whole panorama of options that we have in life, from jobs to houses to cars to who we're going to marry and all this. I think one of the mistakes that we often make as Christians is that we, we think of God's will as being the dot on the wall. And so for somebody like me who's OCD, trying to figure out what the dot on the wall is can actually drive you batty, right? I want to be in the perfect will of God. And I'm trying to find that dot. And what I've come to believe, and I think you see in Scripture, is that more often what God gives us is not just this dot, because the, the, the one dot that we know is he wants us to become more like Christ. But as we seek him, that often his will is called what I find, what I like to call in parameters. And there's a book, if you ever want to do more research on this, and I'm highly indebted to it, it's called Decision Making in the Will of God, by, written by a guy in, by the name of Gary Friesen. It's, it's an older book. But he talks about that as a Christian life, we're, we're not so much about looking at the dot, we're seeking the Lord, and we're trying to figure out his will that often is within parameters. So let me give you a couple of illustrations. Many of you know, I told this story back in the fall. Uh, I, I was nursing my, my car. I love my car. I had a 2008 Sebring convertible, and, uh, but it was coming to the end of its life cycle. Uh, last fall, it got to the point where I couldn't even take it on the freeway anymore, right? And so, but Tammy and I were in this new stage of life. Kids are all gone. They're out of college. And it was always the plan that I could get the car that I really wanted. And so, in the midst of we're trying to make the decision about buying the car, you just have all of these boatload of things. Now, what I really wanted was a Mustang convertible. I grew up around Mustang convertibles. My first car was a Mustang hardtop. My second one was a Mustang convertible. I wanted a Mustang convertible. But hey, is it, is it decent for a pastor <laughs> to be driving around in a Mustang convertible? And then, you know, I started looking, and there's the 2019 charcoal gray uh, but it only has the little four-cylinder turbo boost, right? Or, but there's this white one that's a 2017. It's got the big 
eight-cylinder, right? So what, what would God want me to have, right? What, what is it? You don't want to miss his will here, or do I just need to go get the Toyota Prius? And, you know, it, how do you find his will? Well, what are the parameters? Well, I think biblically, the first parameter that I was processing was, hey, is this a true need or is it just a want? The Bible talks a lot about don't buy things hastily. Don't, don't just go with your impulse. You, if you don't plan, if you don't think about it, you're, you're not going to have anything. And obviously, we were to the point, I couldn't even get on the freeway anymore. It was time for a new car. The second thing is, can I afford the car? Now, Tammy and I are of the mind that when we say can we afford it, it's not just so much do we have the money in the budget, but do I actually have money to pay for it? Because we're not going to take out debt on doing this. And so when I found the 55,000 brand new Mustang convertible, that clearly was not the will of God for me, right? Because that was not something that I just had the cash to pay for. But can I afford it? The third thing is then... Is it a good deal? I, I think it's the Lord's money, right? We don't, we don't want to overpay. We want to make sure we're getting a good deal and that this is what, you know, something's going to last. And so we went through that whole process. And then the last piece for me, because I'm married, is was Tammy's heart in agreement? And guess what? All of those rang true with the charcoal gray 2019 and the 2017 white with the eight cylinder I think there was freedom I didn't mention last service I got asked 18 times I ended up with the charcoal gray it is really cool I can tell you six months later clearly the will of God for Steve right <laughs> I become the guy that I hate out on the freeway because that little four cylinder is the peppiest little engine I've ever had <laughs> but you understand freedom within parameters that God gives us in his word. You say, well, Steve, that's, you know, it's just a car. Okay, let me, let me maybe take something a little, let's up the ante a little bit. Should I marry this person? Now, I know for some of you saying, Steve, you're late to this party. I get that. <laughs> but maybe there's someone close to you that's going through that process. I believe that within parameters, God gives us freedom. I don't think you're looking for that one out of four billion people of the opposite sex. I think that God gives some freedom. But what are some of the parameters? What I would take from his word is the number one parameter is this. Am I whole with me and Jesus? Because see, the Bible says you'll have no other God before me. And if your need to marry is because you just feel, you know, I am incomplete, you know, they complete me, you are just setting them up to fail. Jesus is the only one that can complete us. So if you're not good with just you and him, it's not time to be getting married. It's time to figure that out, that you are good with just him. Second thing is, okay, so I'm good with just me and Jesus, but here's this one, and we're hitting it off, all right? So second thing, are they a believer? The Bible says don't be unequally yoked, and I think that's beyond just being a believer. That's someone who has the same passion for Jesus that I have because you get, you get misaligned there, and I can give you lots of references of people that will tell you that was one of the most difficult things they've had to live with. They love their spouse, 
but this misalignment in their passion for Jesus. Number three, I believe the way God created Eve, it was not good for man to be alone, that there was a, there was a thriving that came in that relationship. And so do we help each other thrive? Do we bring out the best in each other? Am I a better me? And if, and if you know me and Tammy, you know I'm way better with her than I am just on my own. Do we bring that out of each other? Or quite honestly, do what we bring out of is just grumpiness and fighting and complaining? Trust me, you don't want to marry that. Because it'll only get worse. And that stuff that you think is so cute now, it's not cute a year and two in. And then number four is the wisdom of my community, the people that know me. I'm going to talk about this in a moment because I think one of the greatest things that God gives us are godly people around us that can speak. What do they think? Are they, are they holding up red flags? Are they holding up yellow flags? You need to stop and listen to that because they love you. They know you. You know, there's an old phrase out there. It's called love is blind. They just didn't make that up. There's truth, right? Your heart starts going, gets ahead of your head. That's why God puts people around you. So I think that many cases, most cases in our life, what God's most important is that we just seek him because he's making us to be more like Jesus. And that often in our decision-making, there's parameters. We can, we can do certain things within those biblical parameters. Now you say, but wait a minute. What if it is to go to Nineveh? Right? So let's say that God's will for this particular thing in my life is that dot on the wall. Here's the beauty of it. You're seeking the Lord. You're, you're trying to look at all the parameters. God will get you there. I believe with all my heart that God wanted me to be at Desert Springs. He changed the circumstances. We're praying about it, and I was really kind of wanting to go to Scottsdale, but God changed some of the circumstances and made it pretty clear. This is where I was supposed to be. I think 28 and a half years later, I can see it now. God will get you where you want to go. You seek him. So if God has that specific place, let me just hurriedly, there are five tools that I think God has given us that help us discern his will. The first thing is, is his word. That's where you find the parameters. That's why I've got to be in the word. It's wisdom. It's truth. Be in his word. And here's the thing. If there's a prohibition about what you want to do from God's word, God's will never, ever, ever goes against his word never goes against his word. Secondly, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, to, to inside of us. And you know, sometimes it's like, well, I have this feeling, right? And then you're trying to figure, is that the Holy Spirit? Is that the pizza that I had last night? Well, I think so, of Philippians 4 gives us great wisdom. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind. Right? You're following Jesus. It's their anxious spirit. Man, let that be a hesitation. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. 
The third thing is, is the counsel of godly people. I've already mentioned that. There's a lot of wisdom in the Bible about this. In Proverbs, it says, without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. In verse 20, or chapter 24, it says, by wise guidance, you will wage war. And in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. Some of the worst mistakes that people make and that I make are made in the, the counsel of our own mind instead of taking it out to other godly people who know us. Number four, it's allowing God to change circumstances. You know, sometimes we get something we want it so bad and we're gonna, we're gonna maneuver the circumstances. I had a really good friend. He was a young Christian and he was in a relationship with somebody he probably shouldn't have been. His friends were warning and all and and so he hatched this plan. He was going to move to Reno. He'd always wanted to live in the Tahoe area. It was kind of his favorite place on earth. And he was going to move there. And if this young lady happened to show up, then it was God's will for them to get married. Of course, what he wouldn't tell you is he had already bought her ticket to come. You got to allow God to maneuver circumstances. It's with an open hand. And Lord... I'm going to move forward. This is what I believe you call me to do. This is what I'd like to do, right? I feel I'm in the parameters. But if you're going to shut the door, that's okay. And lastly, and this is, I think, especially, I mean, obviously very important if you're married. If you're not, it's why you've got to really lean into godly friends is, is there that unity of decision? If you're married, God's giving you a spouse for a reason. And you need to listen to that. And you need to allow God to bring them along. And if not, then you, you, there needs to be that check in your spirit. Because the way the Holy Spirit works is he doesn't just speak to me. He speaks to her. One of the things I love about our elder group here is that we've got men from different perspectives. We, we, in fact, that's one of the things that we always look for. And we get into something and we discuss it and we see it from different ways. And it's times where, you know, there's not agreement, but we continue to process it until there's a unity of spirit. And in that, we, we believe we can find the will and the mind of God. That unity of decision with your, with, with your spouse. Folks, I don't know if God's ever just going to show up and say the word of the Lord to you and this is what you got to do. Praise God if he does. It makes it really clear. For most of us, it's not that. Yet his will for us is very, very clear. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And he often uses the, what about this job? What about that job? Do I move here? What about this person? What, do I, what about this car? What about this house? Simply as tools to push us to him so that we can see those parameters and within that box find the freedom to do the things that, that we choose to do.